Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting in His faithfulness to all generations. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are immutable, unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What confidence, what security that gives us as we look to you as our Heavenly Father who cares, who has told us as we've just heard the choir sing, to cast all of our cares upon you knowing that you care for us. There are many needs that are represented here. To those who are listening, we pray, O oh God, that we would take those needs and bring them to you. Thank you that we can come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. Now prepare our hearts to hear your word. You told us not to receive it in a filthy heart, but a clean heart. You said if we hold on, if we regard iniquity in our hearts, you don't hear. So may we, like King David, forsake and confess our sin. Wash us, O God, that we might be pure. Teach us by the Spirit. Help me today. Thank you that in weakness there is strength. I ask that you would come and fill me by your Spirit, that you would minister through me into my own heart as I share with your people. Holy Spirit of God, thank you that you have come. You have assured us that we are children of God. You've borne witness to our spirit. Thank you that your love has been poured out in our hearts and that you are our helper, our teacher. You told us not to ignore our intellect, but not to lean upon it. And so we come and we acknowledge you and pray that you would open the word of God to us, not so that we can become more intelligent, but that we might become more like Jesus Christ. So, Father, we dedicate this hour of worship through your word to you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, which is often called the Revelation of the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms, which is dead center, and scan a little bit to the right. Right after the prophet Ezekiel, you will come to the prophet Daniel. I think you will be challenged by this study of Daniel because he's a man indeed for all seasons. He's a man who will model for us morally, spiritually, and ethically how to stand strong in a culture that is becoming more and more and more pagan. He's a model of integrity, a man who never compromises his convictions. And unlike many of his great forefathers, like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Daniel is a man of whom nothing negative is ever written, not a single word of criticism. He's linked with Joseph and Joshua and Samuel and Nehemiah. He's an amazing prophet. He's the prophet of the end time and he's the prophet of the meantime. He's going to look down the corridors of history to the last of the last days. And he's going to give us a picture of what to expect. But he's also the prophet of the meantime and that he's going to show us how to live in those days. He's going to show us by his own life and the lives of his companions how we can stand strong in a culture that hates God. Now, key to understanding the book of Revelation, a book that everyone seemingly wants to read, 
is to understand the prophet Daniel. When we come to Revelation, and I plan to teach them by God's grace back to back, when we come to Revelation, we're going to see there are four approaches to Revelation, three that are totally erroneous. And the reason they are in error is because they don't understand what Daniel said. And so critical to understanding the Revelation is to understand the prophet Daniel. That's true to understanding Ezekiel or Isaiah in the prophetic portions in those books and certainly other passages like the Olivet Discourse. And so as we come to this book, I hope you will ponder it, study it, meditate on it, and even review it in the days ahead. So as you can see in your bulletin, there is a note-taking outline, and I have three objectives for us today. Pull it out, if you will. Like Aristotle, who said, like archers, we will stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. I want to delineate the target that I want to aim at today. First, I want us to get an overview of the book. I want us to understand the big picture. Second, I want us to understand the historical background in which Daniel lived. And third, I want us to examine the first chapter of Daniel, which really serves as an introduction to the entire book. At least that way, if you fall asleep, you'll know where we are when you wake up, all right? So by way of introduction, let's begin with an overview of the, of the prophet's message. Let's get an overview. If you can get the big picture of any book of the Bible, the details will begin to take on meaning. There's a chart there that you might want to fill in. If you read through Daniel over and over again, you will see there are two major divisions. Chapters 1 through 6 deals with Daniel and his personal friends, whereas the focus of chapters 7 through 12 deal with Daniel and his people's future. Now, when you come to chapters 1 through 6, you're going to discover it's largely historical with a little bit of prophecy sprinkled in. When we first meet Daniel, here in the first chapter, he's about 15 years old. When we find him in chapter 6, the end of the historical section, we will see he's a man in his 80s. He's an old man. In the events, there are six major historical events that we will study in the first six chapters. They follow chronologically. When you come to chapters 7 through 12, you immediately notice there's a change in tone. Because 1 through 6 have been in the third person all the way through. When you come to chapter 7, it's expressed in the first person. And in both sections, be it the historical section, 1 through 6, or the prophecy section, 7 through 12, and that's the focus of the second half, prophecy, with a little bit of history sprinkled in. And I need to say that we will see that a lot of the prophecy section will overlay the historical section. Now, we'll show you where those two sections are concurrent as we work through it, all right? Now, I also need to say, by way of an aside here, that the book of Daniel is a book that the critics love to tear apart. Next to the book of Genesis, the book of Daniel is the most attacked book in all of the Bible. And they attack it for a number of reasons. Number one, they don't like the supernatural, and of course, Paul tells us that an unregenerate natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And so whenever there are miracles in the Bible, a man who hates God and is opposed to God will write those off. But there's a second reason why they don't like Daniel and love to attack it, and it's because of its prophetic nature. Now, I have in my library a book called The Prophecies of Nostradamus. He was supposedly a 16th century seer. And he wrote hundreds of prophecies. If you've read the book, it's vague. 
Uh, the so-called prophecies that he writes could apply to dozens and dozens of given situations. And many of the prophecies he writes, even if you say it applies to such and such, were never fulfilled. In fact, were contradicted. He is what the Bible would call a false prophet. And the prophecies and the nature of what he writes is no different from the modern-day horoscope. Something you shouldn't read. God calls it detestable. Hope you don't read the daily horoscope. But the horoscope, for the most part, is so vague it could apply to a million things. But when we come to a prophet like Daniel, we're going to see a high degree of specificity in all of his prophecies. In fact, one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Bible is found in the prophet Daniel when he is praying a prayer and pouring his heart out to God and the angel Gabriel comes and interrupts him and gives him a prophecy that is absolutely astounding. Many times people will say to me, well, pastor, everything you've said is from the Bible. Why should I believe the Bible more than the Book of Mormon or the Quran or some other religious book? Well, you're going to have your answer by the time we're done with Daniel. Yes, Daniel was written by fallible, fallen, sinful men. But men who wrote infallibly, who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Peter's words, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the prophecies in this book that have already been fulfilled are going to blow your mind in light of the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. And so, two big sections. Daniel and his personal friends, Daniel and his personal future. First section, history, a little prophecy in there. Second section, prophecy, a little bit of history in there. Now that's the overview. Let's go beyond the big picture and let's talk about the historical background of Daniel's day. Now I know for many of you, history was not your favorite subject in school and maybe is not if you're a student currently. And I hope you're still a student. I hope you never stop learning. But you need to understand the historical setting of the Old Testament. If I were to take many of your Bibles, I would discover that the clean section of your Bible is the Old Testament, maybe with the exception of the Proverbs and the Psalms. And the reason is, is many of us are intimidated by the Old Testament. So you have great intentions to read through the Bible in a year, and you come to Leviticus, the pots and pans division, and you quit. Why? Because we can't put it together historically. And so it's very important when you read the Old Testament, you understand where they are in God's history in dealing with his people. So let me give you some broad scope here today. You're not going to get it in one sermon. You might want to go back and listen to it, think your way through it. But remember, of course, the nation of Israel was founded through a man by the name of Abram, later changed to Abraham. Abraham, if you remember, had two sons. You remember his two sons? He had the son of promise, and he had the son of the bondwoman. One was named Isaac. Remember Isaac? He's the son of promise. Isaac, of course, has two sons, one of whom is the son of promise, and the other is not, Jacob and Esau. So you've got Isaac, and you've got uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, of course, his name is later changed to what? Israel. Good. Very good. His name is changed to Israel. And so he has 12 children, just like Ishmael has 12 children, Abraham's second son, who form the 12, 12 tribes that become the 12 Arab nations that we have today, who are forever opposed against the people of Israel. 
Well, Jacob has 12 sons. They make the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. He is renamed Israel. And so throughout the Old Testament, God will refer to his people in a general way as the children of Israel. And as God had prophesied to uh, Abraham, his people end up down in a place called Egypt. They go there initially because of a severe famine in the land. And God in his providence raises up one of Jacob's sons by the name of Joseph who rises to the position of prime minister, and God preserves the nation and other peoples through this man, Joseph. Joseph dies, and a pharaoh comes on the throne who does not know Joseph. And so, as God had said to Abraham, they ended up in bondage for some 400 years. After the 400 years of bondage, God raises up a man by the name of Moses, who leads the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. He dies, and then God raises up another person by the name of Joshua who leads them into the promised land. Joshua gives a fantastic, powerful sermon warning the people just before he dies. He dies, and in one generation, degeneration takes place. And they ignore the warning of God through Joshua, and they give themselves over to the idols of the land. And so you have the book of Judges this time of up and down, as they look around and they see the peoples in the land, they want a king like the other people's desire. And so God gives them the desires of their heart and you enter into the period of the kingdom or the period of the monarchy. The kingdom, all 12 tribes are united from 1051 B.C. to 931 B.C. under the three greatest of all of Israel's kings, SDS, Saul, David, Solomon. How long does each reign? 40 years. It's really easy. 120 years, the kingdom is united. Solomon, of course, compromises himself, but for the sake of his father, David, God doesn't split the kingdom under Solomon. He said, because of the special relationship that David and I have, I won't allow that to happen until your son steps on the throne. And so we read in 1 Kings 11, now King Solomon did what God told him not to do. He loved many foreign women. And so his heart was drawn away into the idolatry of the nations around him. And so we read in 1 Kings 11 and verse 4, For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father had been. Now let me just say something in passing. You cannot take the clear teachings of the Word of God, set them aside, and live without consequences. You cannot walk the wire of one foot in the church and one foot in the world. You will pay the consequences of that. Now, as you can see on this map, the kingdom divides because Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. And because of the pig-headedness and greed of Rehoboam, the kingdom splits. And so there's a divided kingdom for 345 years. The ten northern tribes are called Israel, all right? Now remember, up till that time, they are generally all called the children of Israel. And occasionally, they are still called both tribes the children of Israel. But for the most part, after the kingdom divides, the ten northern tribes are called Israel, They're also called Ephraim after the most influential tribe. One occasion they're called the House of Joseph. Another occasion they're called Israel of Samaria. They have 20 kings in the north. Everyone is wicked. They go on for a period of time until 722 B.C. 
And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet telling them to repent, to get their hearts right, but they ignore what God says through his men. And so God uses the Assyrian people as an instrument and they come down and they carry away the 10 tribes and they go into a time of deportation. Now, some people talk about the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They weren't lost. And it's sheer nonsense what some of our British brothers came up with about 100 years ago, what they call British Israelism. No, they were not lost at all. In either case, the two southern tribes continue. The two southern tribes are called Judah. Israel has as their capital the northern kingdom, Samaria. And so when Jesus comes to a woman at the well, there is a debate over what's the best place to worship the place where the northern apostate people worship or where the pious Jew worshiped, even the ten tribes, come down into Jerusalem and worship as God had dictated. And I say they're not lost because you step into the New Testament, you've got a, like, a guy like Paul who's from what tribe? Tribe of Benjamin. You've got someone by the name of Anna who's from the tribe of Asher. They weren't lost at all. But they worshipped in Samaria, the southern tribes, uh, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, named after the larger of the two. Their capital was Jerusalem. They continue for another 136 years. God sends prophet after prophet, warns them, repent, get your heart right. They don't listen. So God sends now the Babylonians. By this time, they had overthrown the Assyrian Empire. And the major world power is the Babylonians. They come down and they carry away the Jewish people into Babylon. It's real easy to remember. I comes before J, A comes before B. Israel is carried away by the Assyrians. Judah is carried away by the Babylonians. All right, let's try to keep that straight if we can. So Daniel is a part of the southern kingdom. And it is at this time when they come down from the north, the Babylonian, that Daniel and his friends are carried away. Now, the reason, again, the Old Testament is a closed book for so many of us is because we can't put it together historically. But if you come to any Old Testament prophet, and there are 17 prophets in the Old Testament, if you simply ask at what time in Israel's history did this prophet serve and minister, the prophet will come alive for you. Was he a pre-exilic prophet? Was he an exilic prophet like Daniel? Or was he a post-exilic prophet? The pre-exilic prophets preach either to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom or both. The exilic prophets, and there's just two, and their books are side by side, Ezekiel and Daniel. They preach during the time of the exile. The post-exilic prophets, after they're brought back into the land of Jerusalem, there's just three, and those three books come right at the end of your Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So if you stop and ask, where is this prophet preaching? To whom is he preaching? Then you will begin to understand. Now, as to when in Israel's history Daniel ministered, the key is in the opening verse. Look at verse 1 of Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, that's what we just studied in our background. This verse signals the beginning stages of the fall of Judah, the southern kingdom. Look at verse 2. We learn Jehoiakim is king, and we're told the Lord 
And if you remember, in your English Bible, there's two ways in the Old Testament that the word Lord is spelled. There's capital L, small letter O-R-D, which is the Hebrew word Adonai. And then there's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, as distinguished in the New Testament. And that tells you that it's not the Hebrew word Adonai, but the word Yahweh. Which word is this? Don't look at me, look at your text. It's capital L, small letter O-R-D, which tells you this is Adonai. Why is that significant? Because the name Adonai speaks of God as sovereign Lord, that he is over all things. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, Nebuchadnezzar may have thought that he was conquering all on his own. But under the sovereignty of God, a theme that runs all the way through the book of Daniel, whether it's God's sovereignty in Daniel and the lives of his three friends, whether it's God's sovereignty over the Gentile nations, whether it's God's sovereignty over the people of Israel, we will see God is sovereign and God in his sovereignty gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, along with some of the vessels. And the specificity of the word of God, you will appreciate so much. Not all of the vessels. But just some of them, we're going to see the rest of them are taken under his son Jehoiachin. So some of the vessels, those precious instruments in the temple, were taken and brought into the land of Shinar. Where's Shinar? Think of Babylon as the city and think of Shinar as the county. So Shinar is mentioned seven times in the Old Testament and it's describing the land of Babylon. So he brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And who's ruling? Jehoiakim. Remember, 20 kings in the southern kingdom. Eight are righteous, 12 are evil. Jehoiakim is one of the worst kings in the southern kingdom. You might want to put out in the margin next to this, 2 Kings 23.32. 2 Kings 23.32. Two. God gives a summary of Jehoiakim's life and he writes that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. When he was ruling on the throne, God sent the prophet Jeremiah to Jehoiakim and he prophesied detailing how Nebuchadnezzar was going to be the instrument against his life if he didn't repent. Well, he ignores what the prophet Jeremiah does, says. In fact, he ignores it so much, he basically takes his penknife, cuts the scroll up, and burns it in fire. He has a contempt for the Word of God. And when his life is over, the Bible says he has the burial of a donkey. His body was thrown over the wall of the city into what today we would call the Valley of Gehenna. It was the dumping ground, and he has not a king's burial, but a donkey's burial. And what he did really is no different today than some scholars, some theologians, some pastors who approach the Word of God with what we call higher criticism. They say, well, there wasn't one author of Isaiah, there were three. And so when you hear some guy talking about Deutero, Isaiah, or Tritero, Isaiah, you know he's a liberal and he has a contempt for the Word of God. When they talk about five different authors in the Torah, J-E-P-D, you know that person has a contempt for the Word of God. And so you have these critics of the Word of God, and again, they will criticize and tear apart Daniel because of the specificity of his prophecies. And what will they do? They will say he had to have written after the fact that he's writing history, not prophecy. Jesus calls him not Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet. 
And we will see, even with the position they take, as late as they date this letter, there is still prophecy that is fulfilled, but they in their ignorance missed it. There's a supernatural dimension to the Word of God. And some people don't like it. Listen, there's no prophecy in the Hindu Scriptures. There's no prophecy in the Muslim Scriptures. There's no prophecy in the Book of Mormon. Only the Bible, the Word of God, because God alone knows the future. And so they don't like it, and they cut up the Word of God and burn it in their minds, either because of its prophetic nature or its miraculous nature. And I would hate to stand before the living God, having compromised what God said because I didn't like it. And so now we have two Presbyterian churches in our town that say homosexual marriage is okay, and a Baptist church where the pastor won't take a position. I don't want to take a position because it's too, too controversial. He's taken his position. I would hate to stand before the living God, not having preached the Word of God as the inerrant, authoritative, inspired Word of God. But that's what this arrogant King Jehoiakim did that he was guilty of. Now, you have to understand, as you can see on this chart, that Nebuchadnezzar, when he comes to deal with the Jewish people, does so in three phases. He first comes down, as the chart shows, in 605 B.C., when he carries away Jehoiakim and took some of the golden vessels out of the temple. Now, at that time, he takes Daniel and his three friends. So Daniel and his three friends are carried away in 605 B.C. When he comes down... He's not King Nebuchadnezzar, he's General Nebuchadnezzar, and his father is the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And while he is seizing the city, he discovers that his daddy dies. So he makes a deal with the Jewish people, and he puts uh, a vassal king there under his thumb, and he takes some hostages for security, and that's when Daniel and his three friends come. And by the way, as you read the opening verses of the book right before Daniel, Ezekiel, you discover that Ezekiel the prophet is also taken during this time. So Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. A second time, he comes down in 597 B.C. And of course, the city is seized. Uh, and at this point, he takes 10,000 Jews, including uh, uh, this king's son, Jehoiachin, who becomes very important in the Bible. He's called by a couple of different names, but God puts a curse on Jehoiachin. And he says that no king out of, is going to come out of his lineage that God will bless. And of course, uh, that becomes critical when we come to the virgin birth. Lay that aside, that's another sermon. The third siege finally comes when he has this guy Zedekiah, who is a vassal king appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, and he comes down and Zedekiah thinks, oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with this guy, and he doesn't put up with it, and he plucks his eyes out. Now, the prophet Ezekiel said that Zedekiah was going to go to the land of Babylon, but he wouldn't see it, and God fulfills it precisely. You discover that Nebuchadnezzar is a ruthless king likes to take off people's heads, likes to pluck out eyes, and another prophet says he likes to roast his generals who failed him. Not a nice guy, but God has great plans. And if he can save a Nebuchadnezzar, which we will see, he can save absolutely anyone. So this third and final time he comes down, he destroys the temple, 
And so we're going to have a rebuild of the temple, what we call the Solomonic uh, excuse me, we're going to have a rebuild of the temple. The Solomonic temple is destroyed, but another temple is going to be built. And so you have a guy like Ezra who comes along. You have another prophet who says, look, you're living in paneled houses, but God's house is in disrepute. Get your priorities in order. The wall is going to be destroyed at this point. So you have a guy like Nehemiah who comes along who wants to rebuild the wall. And so at this point, he takes away the remaining Jews. He leaves a, a, a few people that are impoverished because they're no threat to Babylon. All right, so that's kind of where we're going. So Daniel is taken here in 605 B.C. He's a youth. He's just a young man. And uh, he's taken away as an adolescent from everything where he would find a sense of security, his family, his friends, and his religious training. And we read in verse 20 that this pagan king, when he comes, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. 10 times better than anything that Babylon could produce. Now this morning, I want to ask and answer a question. What is it that distinguished these young men? What were the qualities that they had that allowed them to make an impact on their culture. Well, there in your note-taking outline, I want to underscore three truths about these young men whom God mightily used. Let's begin with the captives who were taken. The captives who were taken. In verse 3, they are described. It says, And the king ordered Asphanaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and, and of the nobles. So this reference here to the sons of Israel, or if you're using the old King James, it says children of Israel. Uh, the, the Hebrew text says sons of Israel. They use the term children of Israel as an interpretive decision so that you don't confuse them with the northern kingdom. So generally, or initially, they're all called sons of Israel. When the kingdom splits, generally the northern kingdom is called the sons of Israel. But occasionally, the whole, even the southern kingdom, as in this case, are called sons of Israel. Why? Because he's referring to their Abrahamic descent, ultimately through Jacob or Israel. But when you see the term children of Israel, don't think of little children, because if you look in verse 4, it's modified by another word. It's modified by the word yeladim, youths. And it's a specific Hebrew word that refers to a young teenager. And so we're going to discover that he's around 15 years old, Daniel and his friends, when they're taken away. And they're not just from any family. Nebuchadnezzar went after what he would have considered to have been the best amongst the Jewish people. He goes to the royal family. So Daniel and his friends are princes of sorts. And he's hoping to take from the royal family the best the Jews have to offer to brainwash them through a three-year course and to make them leaders in his kingdom. Now, we learned something about Daniel and his friends that distinguished them from all the other youths that were taken. Three characteristics, three traits. First of all, these captives were physically competent. They were physically competent. We read here in the beginning of verse 4, youths in whom was no defect who were good-looking. Yus, Yaladim, they were around 15, in whom was no defect. In other words, they were in excellent physical condition. Let me take a little aside here. Sometimes as Christians today, we downplay the importance of the physical too much. We quote a verse like 1 Timothy 4, verse 5, 
where Paul says bodily exercise profits little, and we say, that's my life verse. But listen, he said that in a day that was non-mechanized. Everything you did, whether it's washing the clothes or walking to the market or saddling up a horse was work. There was a built-in exercise program. And of course, he also said in a day where the Greeks and the Romans literally worshipped the body. But we must never, ever forget that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Suppose you give me a brand new leather satchel for Christmas to carry my Bible to and from work. And I am grateful to you for what you did, and I invite you over to my house for one of those meals for which my wife is famous. And after the meal, I take the garbage off the plates, and I put them in my brand new leather satchel. You say, what? But that is Paul's point to the Corinthians. Our body is like an expensive leather satchel. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and so we are not to prostitute it, morally, nor are we to abuse it physically. You know, I meet Christians who say, oh, Pastor Carl, I don't have any extra time, any extra time for exercise or rest. I'm just so busy. You know, after all, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Oh, really? I didn't know that either were to be an option. God doesn't want you to burn out. He doesn't want you to rust out. He wants you to live out. You say, but the devil never takes a vacation. Well, the devil is not your model. Jesus Christ is. And he said in the Gospels that we are to come apart to a quiet place. There's a time for rest. Vance Habner used to say it so well. He said, if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. And yet the sad thing is that when our health is in its zenith, in our 20s and 30s and 40s, many of us are abusing our bodies, the very instrument that God has given us in which to live out and to carry out His ministry through us. I realize people have physical problems because we live in a fallen world. But many of the physical problems we face, we bring upon ourselves. But notice also, they are described as youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking. The Net Bible says they were handsome. The Southern Baptist Bible says they were uh, good-looking. Well, you say, that counts me out, Pastor. Well, I think actually the King James captures it best. The King James rendered as if they were well-favored. The Hebrew literally says they were pleasing in appearance. Now understand, in the Hebrew mind and in God's mind, and all you have to read is the book of Proverbs, for an example, the external and the internal are inseparably linked. Some Christian people maybe lack the classic features that the world would deem as beauty. But they are very attractive because of their countenance. Other Christians I meet, they'd make a good cover for the book of Lamentations. (laughs) You say, well, pastor, what's the connection? There's a big connection in the Word of God. There's a connection between the internal and the external. I read a book years ago entitled The Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Oyken, and a quote in there caught my attention. Let me read it to you. He said, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyous, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent and consecration." When they are narrow, uninformed, and repressive, 
This Christianity dies a thousand deaths. I hate to say it, but some Christians are just downright depressing to be around. And unfortunately, they do more damage by their negative, critical spirit for the kingdom of God than they do good. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, what kind of an image do I project from the inside? We also need to ask ourselves, what kind of an image do I project from the outside? The way you dress, is it chaste? Is it God-honoring? Are your clothes clean and up-to-date? You say, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, God said, you know, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Exactly my point. Man does look at the outward appearance. And that's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 said, I've become all things to all men that I might win some. He was willing to adapt his clothing. He was willing to lay aside certain dietary preferences and other things in order that he might win people to Jesus Christ. You know, over the years, I've met that there are, I've met Christians to whom some a lost world is just turned off and repelled by, and other people that they are very attracted to. And sometimes the difference is because of what's going on the inside as well as what is going on the outside. So here in verse 4, we're told that Daniel and his friends were youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking. They were physically competent, uh, but in addition, I want you to see these captives were mentally keen. They were mentally keen. Three statements point this out to me here in verse 4. Notice, youths in whom was no defect who are good-looking, showing intelligence, that's the first one, in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, that's the second one, and discerning knowledge, that's the third one. First, they were good learners. They're showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. What does that mean? Well, among other things, it implies they were teachable. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, Timothy, when you're looking for other pastors whom you might pour your life into, There are two things that you should look for. Number one, faithfulness. And number two, teachability. Frankly, as I disciple others, I can care less very often what a person knows. I am interested if he wants to learn. Whether it's teaching someone the Bible or how to share their faith. Look, if someone knows everything, you can't help them as a pastor. These guys had an aptitude to learn. Verse 4, translated here, showing intelligence. The Net Bible says they were well-versed. The Christian Standard says they were suitable. The ESV says they were skillful. The, the Hebrew verb actually has the idea to succeed. They had a winner's attitude, not a loser's limp. They had a desire to learn. They were good learners. They were teachable. I was a campus minister many years ago at Duke University where my wife ministered to the women and I ministered to the men and women alike. And one parent's weekend, I'll never forget a dad who came up to me and said, what on earth did you do to my son? Ever since he became a part of this religious group, his grades have shot straight up. I said, well, I didn't do anything. God did something. He had a second birth. And during my time in campus ministry, I could often show a change in a student's grades from the day he became a believer. Why is that? Because so many students are at the university today for a four-year, all-expense-paid vacation. They're interested in just scraping by academically so they can party the rest of the time at their parents' expense. But when you get saved, you have a new outlook on life. And I wonder how many of you 
are on the cutting edge in your field or your profession, or if you're a mom, you're on the cutting edge of raising those children in the home. You see, so many of us are sloppy and spongy in our thinking. And while we may not adopt the world's moral system, neither are we able to relate to them because we have not really amassed our thinking, uh, immersed our thinking in, in the Holy Scriptures, the revelation of God. And if anyone ought to be able to outthink our culture, it is Christians who have the Word of God. Paul the Apostle is a great example up there in Mars Hill, there in Athens. He quotes one of their own poets and then uses that as a springboard in which to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we find here that they were showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, but notice also they're described as being endowed with understanding. That second characteristic speaks of their mental acuity. They're sharp. The ESV says they were endowed with knowledge. The Hebrew text says literally they were knowing knowledge. In other words, not only were they good learners, they were good thinkers. They were able to take whatever information they were getting and to put it through the sieve of Scripture and to respond accordingly. God tells us that we are to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Notice the third statement. They are discerning knowledge. Another translation says they are understanding knowledge. Another says they are having keen insight. Another says they are perceptive. I think the NASB captures the best by using the word discerning. It's a rare quality that today we call judgment. They could think clearly. They could think intelligently. And it was all tempered by the Word of God. They had the ability to take it through the grid of Scripture. May I remind you that in the New Testament, God's people are called disciples. Mathetes is the Greek word. It means a learner. We ought to be able to learn the truth of God's Word, and that is what is going to make you truly effective for relating to this world in a way that will win them to Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with education and everything to do with your knowledge of the Bible. I meet some who are 35, who have a PhD after their names, who are dead in the head. And I meet others who are in their 60s and 70s, who barely could graduate from high school if they did it all, and they are much alive. What is the difference? Their commitment to the Word of God. And so these young men were trained in their home. Where did they get this education? In their home, as Moses had given them his parents' generations before this instruction. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love him with all your heart, mind, and strength. How so? By teaching your children in the way, in all of the different places of life. That's how they are going to get it, and that's what their parents did. So, he selects these youths from the loyal royal family. Why? Because they're physically competent. They're mentally keen. Third, I want you to see that these captives were socially adept. They were socially adept. Now, in the latter part of verse 4, we read that these young men had the ability to serve in the king's court. Notice, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. Serving in the king's court, these youths were by no means out of place in this royal setting. They were not an embarrassment to themselves, to others, and certainly not to the king. What a stark contrast with so many of the youth in our day. 
I mean, can you see some of the kids of our day serving in the White House who are glued to their uh, phones and other electronics or who dress like, you know, they live in the gutter? These guys were a breed apart. And I'm so proud of so many of the Christian youth in this church who are not followers, but leaders. I meet a lot of Christians who are socially inept, but God calls us to be socially flexible, whether we're in ministry, in the ghetto, or in the White House, it is to make no difference at all. Now, I know people take the social graces to an extreme. When I was growing up, my mom would always quote Amy Vanderbilt. Well, Amy Vanderbilt says, and you know, should you take your spoon when you have your soup and ladle it towards you or away from you? Well, Amy says away. I don't think it makes a big bit of difference. Uh, in fact, she ended up jumping out a window and killing herself. I don't think it helped her too much. But listen, we need to be socially flexible. And you will only be socially flexible when you are not consumed with yourself. But when you have a servant's heart and you think about other people, they're physically competent, they're mentally clean, they're socially adept. Those are the captives who were taken. Second, let's think about the crises, plural, that they faced. The crises came on three levels. First of all, they faced an authority crisis. There was an authority crisis. Look at the end of verse 4. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So he enrolls them in this curriculum to indoctrinate them in the Chaldean, the Babylonian culture. Now, archaeologists have dug up thousands of clay tablets that tell us about this pagan culture. A lot of their archaeology is being destroyed systematically by ISIS. But fortunately, what we have, we have uh, categorized and put in the libraries of the world. They were people who were superstitious. They were into astrology, into pagan philosophies. They thought it was all scholarship. And so these guys are going to face an authority crisis. Who's right? The Babylonian way of thinking or the Word of God? And it comes back all the way to the Garden of Eden when Satan says to that first couple, has God said? And really the same is going on in our day. We have young people who go to the secular universities where the professor's major goal is to destroy their faith, to discredit the authority of God's Word. People ask me all the time, should I send my child to a Christian university or a secular? Depends. If they're strong like Daniel and you've prepared them, and they have steel in their spine, then they'll be able to stand in that kind of a culture. If they don't, then they will crumble. And so they face an authority crisis. Secondly, they face a morality crisis. We read here in verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. They've got a three-year scholarship, a free ride for everything they want, but it's not the kind of free ride that they would have elected. First, they're offered a pagan diet. Now, that's not the way, of course, the king saw it. He was offering him the same food that, they, that he ate. He thought they were doing him a big favor in allowing them to eat from the king's kitchen. Choice food. But this, of course, was a moral issue for these men. They were not interested in eating the king's meat. Why not? Because, number one, some of it would not be kosher. It would be unclean meat. 
it would be forbidden by the old covenant rules. And number two, it would have been dedicated to a pagan god, and they weren't interested. So there's an authority crisis, there's a morality crisis, but there's also an identity crisis. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now their Hebrew names reflect their Jewish heritage. Whenever you see a name with the word El in it, that's one of the names for God, or Ah as in Jehovah, that's also. And so Daniel, his name means God is my judge, Hananiah, it's the Hebrew word meaning Jehovah is gracious. Mishael, it means who is like God. Azariah means Jehovah is my help. So what does he want to do? He wants to strip them of their religious worldview, of their Jewish heritage. And we're told in verse 7, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. Don't confuse that with Belshazzar who we're going to read about later in the book of Daniel. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So Asphanes, the commander of the officials, gives all four of them four pagan names after their pagan gods. To Daniel, to Daniel he gives them Belteshazzar, which is, of course, after the pagan god Baal. To uh, Shadrach, he, he names him uh, after the, the, the name Aku, another pagan, the moon god. To Meshach, after Shak, who was, of course, the, the goddess Shak. And then, of course, there's Abednego after the fire god Nego. Now, it's interesting, maybe because of that silly little song we learn as kids, most of us know them by their pagan names rather than by the names that their parents gave them that reflected their rich, godly heritage. But notice the phrase here at the beginning of verse 6. It says, now among them. He may have given them pagan names, but they do not forget their faith. Now among them. Why does he point out just four? Remember, he went to the royal family. He took use, but there are just four that distinguish themselves. Why are the others not mentioned except in just kind of a wholesale way? Did they cave in under the pressure? Did they compromise? Did they, they give in to the pagan society in which they were? You see, you have to make up your mind. You have to make a decision. And Daniel and his friends made his decision. I became a believer at 18 as a freshman at Boston College. And I remember coming in some Friday nights. And as far as I know, initially I was the only born-again believer on that hallway of 120 men. And I'd come in with a Bible under my arm and it was sheer hell and revelry. Shoulder to shoulder drunkenness, immorality widespread in that dorm. And sometimes it was very lonely. And sometimes I would hear of it from my friends when I came in with that Bible under my arm. Not in a pious way, just coming back from a Bible study. But you have to decide whom you're going to serve. So these are the captives who were taken. This is the crises that they faced. Third, I want you to see the critical decisions that they made. Life really is a series of decisions. And many of the major decisions in life we make when we are young. For years and years in campus ministry, I would give a talk. And I would say three major decisions in life. 
Master, mate, and mission. And most people make those decisions early on in life. Most people receive Christ before the age of 30. Most get married before the age of 30. Most set a career direction before the age of 30. Well, here's Daniel and his friends, and they are at a crisis point in their life. And so what are they going to do? And what they do do will determine for a long time to come what they will be. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, they made a decision from the heart. They made a decision from the heart. Notice how verse 8 begins with a very strong contrastive conjunction. But, but Daniel made up his mind. Now, if you have the New American Standard with the marginal notes, if you will go out into the margin, it will actually give you the literal reading of the Hebrew text. Go out into the margin and look at what it says. It says, but Daniel set upon his heart. Now, that may seem a little awkward, a little wooden in English, but in many respects, it's better. Daniel set upon his heart. In other words, Daniel made a decision in his own heart. It was a decision between him and God. And really, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. I tell that to people who come in all the time. They're in some crisis in their family, and their marriage. Now, I always remind them, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. It is ultimately a heart issue. And I will tell so many, if you will just get on your face and ask God to forgive you and change you, He will begin to do it. Watch over your heart with all diligence, Proverbs says, because out of it flow the springs of life. What is your most important stewardship? Is it your time? Is it your money? Is it your talent? It is your heart. And some of us will leave here today having immersed our thinking in the Word of God and tomorrow we'll fill our minds with utter garbage. And we wonder why we are so ineffective for God. And so they make a heart decision. Daniel made up his mind, his heart, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine in which he drank. Again, remember, these Babylonians would take their meat, not their vegetables, but their meat only, as their own history records, and they would dedicate it to their pagan gods, and they would think when they would then eat this meat, it would bring blessing mentally, physically, socially, spiritually, and in other ways. What about their drink? Was that dedicated? No. Why would he not drink it? Because it was strong drink. And God forbids two things clearly in Scripture. Number one, drunkenness. The other is the use of strong drink with the exception in Proverbs that you can give it to a dying, despairing man like you would give morphine to someone as an act of mercy. Is he talking about whiskey and rum? No, no, no. Those are written. Those are invented 600 years after the Bible is completed. Go online to searchthescriptures.org. Go to the icon called blogs. I've got an article from a brother who went to Princeton Seminary when it was conservative. And he wrote an excellent article that appeared in Christianity Today in the 1970s called Wine Drinking in the New Testament. Read it. That's a sermon in itself. But I want to say parenthetically, I don't know Christians that God is using in might and in power who use alcohol you say, well, I can handle my liquor, Pastor. I can have a glass of beer and it not give me a buzz. That wasn't true at first. First time you had a glass of beer, a glass of wine, you got a little high off of it. 
What's your goal? To see how close you can get to drunkenness? Or how far away you can be from it? Not to mention that it has the appearance of evil in our day. It can cause people to stumble and certainly does not glorify God. Here was Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel as we used to sing. Be a Daniel. Be a person set apart. Alcohol has come back into fashion in our day and now you're cool and all of the preachers of the last hundred years were stupid and ignorant and fundamentalist and ignorant and legalistic. No, they were well studied unlike this generation. I went through four year, a four-year master's program and a three-year doctoral program And believe me, I've thought through this issue and I haven't come to it in a sloppy fashion. He said, I'm not going to eat your unclean meats or your idle, dedicated food, much less your strong drink. Now, there was pressure on this man. No doubt there was cultural pressure. They would have laughed at him. They would have mocked at him, as we're going to see. There was peer pressure. I mean, can you imagine it? What happened to the rest of Daniel's friends? Why are they not distinguished? Maybe they said, look, Daniel, we're hundreds of miles away from home. Nobody's going to know. And really, the real test of who you are is when no one else is there to watch you. No one but God. Come on, Daniel, it's just a little thing. It really doesn't matter. You don't have to be legalistic over this. After all, if we drink some of their drink and eat some of their meat, we can relate to them and maybe we can win them to the God of Israel. Not on his life. He was going to be different. Not to mention there was fear pressure. I mean, look at verse 10. You disobey the king of Babylon. It can cost you your life. And the commander... Uh, the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than they used to your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. And he knew that to be true. This king had a way of reducing the head count and he didn't want his reduced. It was serious. You read in the other prophets about Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a nice guy. But it reminds me that Daniel was willing to take a stance for Christ just like many of the Christians who in recent months have lost their heads. Just like my Soviet brothers who would not compromise. And if it meant going to the gulag and losing everything and getting the worst jobs, then that's what they were going to do. They were going to follow the Word of God. When everybody else said yes, Daniel said no. When everybody else was eating the king's meat, Daniel said not on your life. When everyone was drinking the king's drink, Daniel said, I will not do it. He was not going to bend. And so they made a decision from the heart. Notice, too, they made a decision in humility. In humility, we read here at the end of verse 8, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He has a very gracious attitude. He's not saying, I'm not going to eat any of your pagan food. No, in humility, he asked for permission not to eat. He'd take the pagan education, much like Moses took the one he got down in Egypt. He put up with that. He'd put up with the pagan name, but not eating the pagan food or the pagan drink. To share in that feast was to do something that was morally wrong 
and it didn't matter to him. He had strong convictions. He was not going to compromise himself. But in the desire not to compromise himself, he has such a gracious manner, as we will see through this book, in dealing with pagans. You know, I meet some Christians who have great convictions, but they're cranks. And you wouldn't want to be around them, the way they express their convictions. Verse 10 indicates that he appeals to the commander of the officials. Nonetheless, verse 9 indicates, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The commander is only concerned about his head. But God grants. It's the same word we just read earlier, gives. Same Hebrew word. I don't know why they use two different English words. He gives Daniel favor and compassion. That's God's sovereignty. Instead of being insubordinate, God worked in the heart of this man and he gives favor and compassion. Again, read verse 10. And the commander of the official said to Daniel, I'm afraid. The end of verse 10. You will make me forfeit my head to the king. So when his request is denied, because this is a man of conviction and perseverance, he then goes to his boss, the overseer. Look at verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were drinking, they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. 10 days later, these youths are brought in they're distinctly different. Their countenance looks better. They've got a little more body weight than the rest of them. And life is a lot like that. You think about it. You see one person who lives for Jesus Christ, who walks with the Lord, and there's a youthfulness, there's a spring in their step. You see another person who year after year after year, decade after decade, they live in rebellion and sin, and it's written all over their body. These guys were different. Now, there's a third dimension. Not only do they make a decision from the heart, not only do they make a decision that is expressed in humility, they made a decision that was honored. Just like when God said to Eli, them that honor me, I will honor. So now Daniel makes a decision that is honored. Let's keep reading now, beginning in verse 17. As for these youths, God gave. There's the third time. Verse 2, I've got it circled the word gave. Verse 9, granted, but it's the same Hebrew word, gave. Verse 17, gave. Again, God's sovereignty in these used lives. It's going to run all the way through the book, whether it's his sovereignty over individuals, his sovereignty over Israel, or his sovereignty over the Gentile nations. As for these used, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. 
As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were all in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year. Important chronological note, Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king is a king after the Babylonians are overthrown and the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and he comes to the throne and he steps on the throne and he reads a book that's 150 years old. It's called the prophet Isaiah. And he sees his name written in a book ever before he was born. And he lets the people go. And so this is how we know how old Daniel is by the time he comes into the lion's den. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he sees these young men, he sees Daniel, and he knows there's something distinctly different about them. That there is something on their life that distinguishes them from all the other from the royal household. He can see the results, but he does not understand the cause. He sees the product, but he does not see the process behind that product. He's smart enough to know that they are distinctively different, but he does not know why. And that's the story of our generation. We're looking for people of leadership skill, but we do not know how to produce it. And there's a leadership crisis in our nation from the White House to the church house. And Americans are going after people who are not people of character. And we think like Nebuchadnezzar. We think that the reason people are deficient is because they lack education. So we throw education at them. And there are people in our nation, if they are elected to office and they have their way, they want to make education mandatory from K3 upwards. And they want to bring our children into institutions where God is not even welcomed. It's okay to bring a condom to school, but you bring your Bible to school and look out. And like Nebuchadnezzar, the very person who is responsible for developing these character traits, we have stiff-armed him and we said we don't want him. Now, the fascinating thing about Daniel and his friends is that these men are men of character and they are able to stand the test. In chapter 1, the test concerns the believer's walk. In chapter 3, the test concerns the believer's worship. And in chapter 6, the test concerns the believer's witness. It doesn't matter whether it is a food or a fiery furnace or a furry lion's den, they are able to stand strong no matter what. Now think your way through this. You read this chapter carefully and you discover that Daniel and his friends are offered four things. First, they are offered the best education. From archaeology, we know it was the finest education in the world at that time. Secondly, they were offered positions of influence. Third, they were given new names so that they would feel right at home. And finally, they were invited to dine at the king's table. But Daniel and his friends refused the fourth offer. Now, unfortunately, when we read the first chapter, our tendency is simply to focus on what Daniel and his friends did not do rather than what Daniel and his friends did do. You see, Daniel could have said, I'm not interested in your education. It's pagan, it's devoid of God, hang it on your beak. He could have said, as for your job, I'm not interested. God has given me revelation. I know how the whole thing ends, and you are on the losing side. 
Your empire is going to end up in dust. I don't want your lousy job. As for your name, Big Dale, I'm not interested in being named after some pagan, hedonistic, false god. Why is it that the one thing he refuses is the food and drink? Because that was the one issue that would force him to disobey God. For him, he knew what the Word of God said, and that settled it for him. Let God be found true and every man be found a liar. If I could clone a generation of Daniels, that's what I would want to clone. Men and women, youth, who are set apart, who are willing to stand for Jesus Christ no matter what. Life. It's a series of decisions. We will make hundreds of them in this new week. And what we are today are the result of the decisions that we've made in the past that we'll make today and that we will make tomorrow. You see, Daniel makes a basic decision. And had he not made this decision in this fourth realm right, we never would have had this book we call the prophet Daniel. Even to the casual reader, that becomes so obvious Now, I happen to believe that God wants to use this church, not just in our community, but in our nation and in our world. And I believe He can use this church to make a difference for Jesus Christ, not because of the programs we have, not because of our crafty planning, but because we are willing to be distinctively different like salt and light. It's not our likeness to the world that gives us influence. It's our distinctiveness from the world to be like Christ that will allow us to have that kind of an impact. Listen, first you make your decisions, and then your decisions make you. Dare to be a Daniel. Now, our Holy Father, we know that's not even possible without a birth from above. And I pray today for someone who is here who has never received Jesus Christ as Lord. They're alive physically, but Your Word says they are dead spiritually. And that they must be born again as Jesus told that Pharisee Nicodemus to enter the kingdom of God. My friend, if that's you, if you're here and you've never had a birth from above, that's your greatest need. Because without it, you will not go to heaven and you will spend an eternity without the living God. And you will go through and you will waste decade after decade without any real meaning to life. For you to have this birth, you must admit that you're helpless. That you cannot be your own Savior. But that the Messiah of Israel has come. Salvation is from the Jews, the Bible says. And on a cross, just as Isaiah the prophet said, He was pierced through for our iniquity, but His body did not undergo decay. The One who became your substitute was raised from the dead, proving His sinlessness and His ability to die for you. But you must come in faith. You must take God at His word that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is not something you earn. It is a gift you receive. Would you say in simple faith today, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, what a privilege it is to represent You in our generation. Generation that has lost its way.
people who are desperately looking for reality and education and government, relationships and entertainment and family, but they are looking in all the wrong places because they need to be looking to you. You told us, watch over our hearts with all diligence. May we guard our hearts, the most precious stewardship you've given us. And like Daniel, may we make decisions from the heart that will make us to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.